It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no feet. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, the system of the gangs and the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an intrepid time of truthfulness in a tumultuous world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. You are, and we are, the dynamic duo. We are the queen and the codger. We are the beauty and the beast, and we are here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, (laughs) have you been injured in an accident? With a worrisome wombat, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or patient. You're crunching ice on air. Mm. (laughs) Delicious Don't break your teeth. (laughs) <laughs> or you'll have to call your attorney. <laughs> right, I have. Don't call pres- me. I have precious few teeth left. Oh, no, you got lots of them. <laughs> anyway, no contract or provider patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when the chips are down, when times are tough, medicals. medical, modern medicals, <laughs> get up and go as got up and went. We should have had some what more you, caffeine. What do you do? We should have. You know what you do? You what? show the world you're smarter than a pocket full of pomegranates mm-hmm. by learning what to do for injuries and illness. That's where we come in. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues in the worst of times. They're designed by... Me and her, or her and me. Yeah, mostly me. A doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. (laughs) Compare our kits for contents, compare them for quality, compare them for cost with anybody else's stuff, or just ask anybody who's ever bought one, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, what's up? 
Buttercup. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we learn as much from you as you do from us, so why not connect with us? Why not share it with the class? It's easy, and here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Send us questions. Send us ideas. Send us subjects. Yep. Comments. Send us money. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're, while you're sending all That's that funny. stuff, <laughs> I'm I don't think you could do that via email. But yes. um, well, I guess there's some way. But anyway, <laughs> we won't get that complicated. Just write to us and say hi. You can find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy. A couple of Facebook pages you can like and follow. That's Doom and Bloom is our main business page. We put all of our articles. If you follow that page, you will receive everything that's going on with us, including videos. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Again, we put all of our articles and up-to-date news on there. Uh, Another thing you could do is you can sign up for our newsletter. Folks, don't forget our newsletter gives you all kinds of awesome stuff. We pick the best from the past couple weeks or so, and we send you out a nice little newsletter so you even if you're not looking every day, you can see what's been happening. And lots of times, uh, a deal on uh, some of our medical supplies. Yeah, so, yeah. maybe a coupon or sure. just letting you know uh, maybe something new I've put on the store because I'm always trying to reinvent things. Absolutely. So we also have a very important thing, our YouTube channel. A lot of people learn by watching. So check out our YouTube channel, Dear Bones Nurse Amy, all together, all one word. Whether you're outdoors due to a major disaster or you're just on some kind of wilderness hike, it's possible that you're going to run afoul of some poisonous plants. Of course, in the continental U.S., you can expect to find things like poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, and all sorts of other plants like that in the environment. 350,000 cases of just poison ivy alone are recorded every year in the I'm, United States. I'm pretty sure I remember you getting I did. Serious. I have gotten it. That was horrible. We were in Gatlinburg. And you went down. We're kind of on the side of a mountain. <laughs> it's not a hill, right. folks. It is a mountain in the Smoky Mountain, not at the National Park, but just outside of it. You went down to trim some bushes right. and some vines, and it was just a lot of overgrowth behind the house. And you had to rappel down a rope to get there. Pretty much, yep. And you had long sleeve shirt. Yeah. And you had pants on, and you had gloves. I really don't know how you ended up with this. Well, I'm going to tell you how I think I have a theory on that. Well, that's good. Well, I all I remember is that it started a few hours later. The next day was worse, and you just got worse over, I believe, a period of about two or three weeks till we finally had to take you to a dermatologist yeah, what am to I? get you some See, treatment. I know you're going to yeah. talk about some treatment, but you had to get steroids. I mean, yep. the, a cream. It was just getting worse and worse. Yeah, by that so, time, I think we had figured it out, or we were worried that, about bed yeah, bugs, but, you just but it need, turned out to be poison ivy. Yeah, because it just kept spreading. Yeah. And we had changed environments. You, We were home by this time, so you can't keep getting bit by those kind of things. Right, exactly. And you, Unless you bring them home. Right. <laughs> but I know our home in Gallenberg does not have that, so it's not an issue. <laughs> just well, a lot of poison ivy. Well, poison ivy, by the way, and poison oak, 
The two most common have what they call a trifoliate appearance, which means that they have leaflets of three. Oh, boy. So uh, the old saying goes, leaves of three, let it be. So obviously I brushed it up against some leaves of three. It's not hard. Somewhere. You, do you remember how much was up there a couple months oh. ago oh, yeah, for the spring when oh, we were yeah. in Gatlinburg? Absolutely. <gasps> it was everywhere. Yeah, it was. Poison ivy leaves appear almond-shaped compared to poison oak leaves, which are oak le- uh, poison oak leaves, well, they look like oak leaves, I guess. <laughs> Simple as that. There are various types of subtypes. You know, the funny thing about these plants is they can be vine-like or others can be sort of shrubby looking. Others appear as ground cover. Don't drop things there, buddy. You you dropped your mouse. (laughs) The mouse I just connected. Oh, boy. Well, anyhow, there are lots of plants, by the way, that are perfectly harmless that come in leaves of three, too. So you've got to know what they look like. And I just put an article up on the... Is that one of them? Well, that is a... A tri. Right. It's got three leaves. There you go. Well, we've got leaves of three Mm -hmm. with poison ivy and poison oak, but lots of normal plants or harmless plants that have leaves of three. And we have other plants that are poisonous, like poison sumac, that doesn't have leaves of three. It has seven to 13 pointy leaflets and grow into a small tree, upwards of 20 feet in height. There's also something down in the Florida Keys called poison wood that prefers, as you can imagine, subtropical areas. And it's thought that inhaling smoke from burning sumac or poison wood can actually cause a life-threatening respiratory decompensation. Pretty bad stuff. Well, that's interesting. Let me ask you a question. They do a lot of burning in the Everglades because of the Malalukas to control them. Right. And so they might be burning some poison wood too and causing, which is just making not it too far yeah. away from our house. Yep. Yeah. And we get that smoke from it when they get bad those fires out there. Yeah, hopefully. You can see the smoke and mm-hmm. you can smell it. Yeah, hopefully we're not exposed to too much of that that it mostly is things uh, invasive plants other than this poison wood stuff. Now, the common factor that puts all of these plants together, though all the plants that I've mentioned mm-hmm. have a chemical irritant compound in them that's called erushiol. Rushiol is a oily sort of resin that is produced by the sap and can be found in just about every part of the plant, including vines, leaves, and roots. So it's not just the leaves of poison ivy, not just the roots that can get you in trouble, just about every part of the plant. And this irritant, because it's sort of a resin, sticks to the skin and clothing on contact and causes symptoms in 85% of those people that are exposed. A poison ivy rash is essentially an allergic reaction. In and of itself, it is not contagious. However, and this is how I got it, Yes. any clothing or body parts that have erushiol on them can cause symptoms when it's touched by others. So therefore, what I did is basically I took my clothing off, and I probably touched areas that had this uh, resin oh, called erushiol on it. It's really hard to and get that, off. And that's what caused my problem. So we have to be, I always have to be very, very careful with regards to your clothing when you are out in the woods. As an aside, the presence of erushiol and poison ivy and other plants, you would think that it would be an awesome defense mechanism. But the funny thing is, is that it actually serves to help the plant retain water. Deer and birds and other wildlife can eat poison ivy without any ill effect whatsoever. So the poor humans. It's basically... We're getting picked on. It's not even a defense mechanism <laughs> for the darn plant. It's just that we happen to be sensitive to it. Now, the rash of poison ivy and, or poison oak or poison sumac, they look very similar. Uh, it causes itching. Uh, itching. They cause a red, bumpy rash. It usually starts about a day or so after exposure. Mm-hmm. And the rash continues to spread for a few days. That's what it did with me. And it lasts. Yours yep. spread more like two weeks. And it, yeah, well, it lasts. That's why we were getting concerned. Right. Mine lasted for 
for more than three weeks, weeks maybe a month. Weeks. And uh, more in some cases. Well, it can be sort of streaky looking depending on if your skin was actually touched by it. Uh-huh. It would look sort of streaky because as you walk by a plant, you know. It drags it along of, it. Right, that exactly. makes sense. So it would make a linear rash But appear. also as you touch it, let's say you take a bath, but you're not bathing with a particular soap that's going to remove this resin. Think about washing yourself. That hand movement on your skin yes. is going to start spreading it. Exactly right. And the worst thing is that you can actually break the skin because you're itching so badly. that You break the skin. The skin's your armor, remember. And you can wind up getting a, a, an infection with something. You didn't get no, an infection. This is not an infection. Bad. This is not an infection itself, a poison ivy rash, no. but it can cause infections with secondary infections with yep. bacteria and things like that. And it's sometimes difficult to make the diagnosis. I mean, most people like me didn't don't even realize they were exposed during their time outdoors. Because well, you were completely covered. Right. We had you in gloves, you had I think you even had maybe a some head cover. You always wear a hat. Yeah. Because the sun. Sure. So even your head was covered (laughs) in some fashion. Crazy, baby. Well, exposure like this, by the way, also occurs indirectly by petting, let's say, the fur of a dog that had been outside Mm -hmm. or or one of the kids that might be outside. The rash might appear in winter, and that can be confusing, too, because plants like poison ivy and poison oak that are dormant for the winter can still cause reactions if you rub up against them. Basically, it all sounds awful. <laughs> I mean, what you have to take away from this is a red, bumpy, itchy rash, and anybody who's been in the great outdoors or near others who have, including pets, should raise your suspicions if that that rash might be poison ivy. It could be poison oak or poison sumac. Mm-hmm. And these plants, one or the other, exist just about everywhere in North America except maybe the top of a mountain or the middle of the desert. So, as such, you should always have it on your list of possibilities for people who have significant rashes with itching just going in wilderness out, settings. Outdoors, right. Even, Absolutely. Even if in your backyard, if it's overgrown, it can be there. We had four acres in Georgia when I was growing up, and we would go blackberry picking. And we get two things. We get chiggers, which get up underneath no matter what you were wearing and bite the heck out of you. Yeah, that's, little bugs. That's the nice, nice word yeah, I'm going to uh-huh. use. And poison ivy. Yep. Oh, my gosh, my brother and I. We would probably bathe 50% of the time in baking soda or vinegar. <laughs> right. I'd go, we're actually going to talk about that a little bit. I either smelled like a salad or <laughs> some sort of baking goods. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say once you've figured out that there's been exposure to poison ivy, it's so important to wash the exposed area and clo- in your clothing with soap and water as quickly as you possibly can. That is so important. Mm-hmm. Make sure you wash yourself after you come in. Now, erythriol, the chemical irritant into all these plants, it's not easy to remove, so you have to have special types of soaps that are effective against resin or oil, yeah, such as Fells Nafta. Right, Fells. So, don't forget, folks, have a bar of Fells Nafta soap. It is 94 or 97 cents at Walmart. Cheap. It's in the laundry detergent area. Right, because they used to take, you can actually cut chips off it and use it to wash your clothing and get get the resin off your clothing, Exactly. Too. So wash when you go outdoors and you think you could possibly have been exposed. This is not a soap you want to use on your skin every single day. But if you go outdoors and you think, gee, you know what? I saw some or I was in some, some thick brush. Go ahead and wash your body with the Fels Nafta soap and shave 
some pieces off of the bar of soap and add it to your laundry and wash it in hot water. Hot water with the Fels Nafta soap. If you haven't heard of it, by the way, it's F-E-L-S hyphen Naphtha, N-A-P-T-H-A soap. It's been around since at least the 1930s. Forever. We saw and an ad for it in, in an extremely in old magazine. In one of our old magazines, yeah, Very from old. the World War II. Yes. That was a popular laundry detergent It looks exactly back then. the same. And it looks the same now <laughs> same as wrapper. it did in 1940. It's funny when we buy it because I put it in my medical kits. The family bag has, um, a, has Bell's Nafta soap in sure. it. When we check out... And then people are like, oh, I remember that soap. You see all the older ladies. They're like, I used to wash with that. I didn't know it still existed. <laughs> it's not easy to find in the laundry detergent, but at least I've pointed you to the right aisle. Just look for the bars of soap amongst all of the bottles. Because there's not a lot of bar, bars of soap in the laundry detergent area. That's true. Yes, you're right. It's near um, probably the borax. Yes. And I forget the... 20 mule team um, borax. Yeah, but there's also another one. Baking, it's not baking Ajax soda. Or... Laundry soda, I think it's called. The other one that I, because we try not to have too right. many chemicals. Right. Anyway. Ajax. All right. But the, anyhow, all that, the old fashioned stuff. But you'll find it, you can actually find it at places like Walmart. Uh, other treatments that you should do, of course, once you start getting the rash, you're going to be miserable. So you need to have some oh, hydrocortisone cream in your medical supplies, maybe some calamine lotion or capsaicin cream, antihistamines like diphenhydramine, otherwise known as Benadryl. Or that Claritin. Claritin might be helpful. The problem with Claritin and Zyrtec is they're just, they're not quite as strong. They don't cause the drowsiness that Benadryl does. So right. it's kind of like risks and benefits. Right. You might want to take the Benadryl at night. Well, Benadryl at night at 50 milligrams will definitely be a sedative. It'll put you right to sleep. Most people. So for most people, yeah. so something to consider. Some people do recommend the use of rubbing alcohol on exposed areas, maybe uh, applying cool compresses that might be soothing. And that's those are just that's just one home remedy. There are many home remedies that are thought to be effective to treat poison ivy rash. They include, I think, as you mentioned, apple cider vinegar. By the way, it burns at first, but it does help take away the itching. Baking soda paste. Put oh. a little water in baking soda, make well, a paste out of it, yes. and put it on the rash. Let me just say something about the apple cider vinegar. Do it in a 50-50 oh, yeah. at least. 50% water, 50% vinegar. Those compresses, you're going to probably leave them on for 10, 15 minutes. But straight-up vinegar is a little harsh, so I would certainly mix at least a 50-50. If you want to start off with, you know, 25% vinegar and 75% water and just see how that feels and how that works. And if you're pouring it in a bath, you can pour a lot because you've got a bathtub full of water. Right, sure. So it'll still be pretty uh, diluted, Dilute, yeah. right? Won't be certainly won't be 50 50. Exactly. Uh, Epsom salt baths, uh, oatmeal baths, those are supposedly yes. good. Uh, tea bag compresses, especially with things like chamomile tea. Some people will consider using aloe vera gel mixing with some essential oils, tea tree oil, maybe lavender, peppermint, geranium, chamomile. These have all been used. Absolutely. And make sure if you're using those essential oils by themselves that you mix them in a carrier oil, something like coconut oil. Is really nice and soothing for the skin. Um, you can use olive oil if you want. Uh, there's a lot of things called carrier oils, which yeah, are sort aloe of... aloe vera maybe, too. Yeah, I mean, if you're mixing in aloe vera, it's, it, you just don't want to put too a much. straight essential yes, oil from the bottle onto your skin. Strong stuff. Yeah, they're really strong. And they could burn. So right. you want to mix. Sometimes just a, a, a few drops 
in some oil. Yeah, it would work just, so great, it's, just fine. It, a really dilute amount because these things are so concentrated. I don't think people realize that, that this is straight from a plant material. They're squeezed or they're... Um, distilled. distilled. Right. right, exactly. There's different methods of, yeah, there's cold press, but they're concentrated amounts. And there's a lot of plant material that goes into just a tiny bit of these oils. So dilute them. Just always be safer for your skin to dilute them. Don't don't put them straight from the bottle on yourself. Now, one thing they do suggest putting on the uh, straight on is Jewelweed, if you happen to be in an area where they grow jewelweed, you can mash up the leaves and then apply that as sort of, sort of like a poultice, and that might be helpful. There's so many different home remedies. I'll bet you know some at home, and feel free to send us some at drbonespodcast.aol.com. Natural, by the way, or commercial creams and ointments, they sh- you should dab them on as opposed to rubbing them on. That rubbing can cause irritation. And for people that have the worst case scenario where you have blistering and swelling from poison ivy, it can slow healing. So important thing to know is that there is a whole spectrum of how bad poison ivy can be. It might just be a mild rash with itching. It could be very widespread. It could be on your face. It could be anywhere, oh. really. And in the worst cases, they actually give prescription where there's lots of blistering and, and lots of swelling. They actually would consider using medications like uh, steroids, like Medrol, Dosepak, uh, could be uh, needed. That's, That's called methylprednisolone. Yeah. And that might be needed to speed recovery and prevent complications. Now, the good news, though, however, in the grand majority of cases, even if you don't treat the rash, it usually goes away by itself in two to four weeks. After great most suffering, ca- in we'll most say. cases, in most cases, yes, <laughs> you ha- never have to prove your courage in any other way. No. <laughs> so, therefore, what makes the most sense to prevent it? So, the important yes. thing is to avoid getting the toxin on your skin. For goodness' sake. If you can't avoid exposure, be sure to wear long pants, long sleeve shirts, work gloves and boots if you're going to be working in an area that that are no, that's known to harbor poison plants, and be extraordinarily careful about how you remove that clothing. That is very very important. There's actually an over-the-counter lotion. They used to have one called Ivy Block. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's now another one called Ivy X. I V Y X, capital X. Uh, as a preventative, and is theoretically, if you know you're going to go into the area, apply it as you would a sunblock to lightly areas of exposure, and theoretically, it prevents the oil from being absorbed by your skin. I mean, let's face it, the effects of things like poison ivy and oak or sumac, they can make you pretty darn miserable, can cause secondary infections, and believe me, you don't want that. It'll decrease your work efficiency in the great outdoors. And if you need to be in the great outdoors because something has happened, well, you know what? If you know how to identify these plants and be aware of your surroundings, you'll have a lot less headaches off the grid. Well, let's talk a little bit about orthopedic injuries. I don't know if I've talked recently about that. Injuries like sprains and strains and fractures are part and parcel of an active life in normal times. In normal times, you can repair these things with the help of modern medical facilities and orthopedic surgeons and things like that. But even in wilderness settings, you still, in normal times, consider the possibility of transport to where the miracle of high technology is available. And and all of this guides the way you treat injuries if you read any of the common outdoor medical books or wilderness medical first aid books, you'll see that they're all depend upon the eventual transport to a a high medical resource. That's awesome. And 
advanced it, first there, yeah, advanced right? first aid is uh, is now <clears throat> often called pre-hospital care. That's how dependent we are on hospitals that we even define it as pre-hospital as pre, right. pre-hospital care. So gearing the medical mindset towards getting a victim to the hospital makes perfect sense. Injuries will happen though, and it's possible that some major disaster might put hospitals out of commission for the long term. So I was approached by the nice folks at Survivor's Edge magazine to write an article on how to set a broken bone. And that makes a lot of sense. There are going to be a lot of injuries like that. Survivors are going to be required to perform activities of daily survival. And many people won't be accustomed to that. I know I'm not accustomed to chopping wood, for example. So, you know, I could easily injure myself or cooking on a, on a campfire. I probably could burn myself. So the strenuous nature of all these activities can lead to all sorts of bad outcomes from dudes, you know. (laughs) And uh, one of those things is possibly a broken bone, you know. We wind up having all sorts of different injuries, and if enough force is applied, an injury to soft tissues can damage the skeletal structure underneath. Now, when a bone is broken, we call it a fracture. And guess what? More than 6 million people are going to break a bone every year in the United States. That's 6 million cracks that are sickening and make you... Sounds terrible, honey. Make you want to throw up. I'll tell you, (laughs) make me want to... There are various types of fractures, all sorts of fractures, with colorful names like hairline fractures and green stick fractures and community fractures and all sorts of stuff. But from my standpoint, as far as I'm concerned, there are two general ones. They're closed and open. A closed fracture is when the bone is broken, but the skin's intact. An open or a compound fracture involves a break in the skin. Oftentimes, the bone might even protrude through it. That is really scary looking, but it doesn't always have to happen. Sometimes the bone will break through it and then will just go right back in. Your skin is your armor against infection. I think I mentioned that a little earlier. And with an open fracture... An open fracture, sometimes called a compound fracture, that armor is breached and normally pretty benign bacteria can enter areas where they're not supposed to be, like the bone marrow or maybe the bloodstream. And that could lead to life-threatening infections. In the bone marrow, they call it osteomyelitis. And in the bloodstream, they call it septicemia. And these can kill you. When your buddy breaks a leg on the trail in normal times, help, help, of course, is just a 911 call away. Call 911. And the standard first aid treatment for a fracture goes as follows. This is for normal times. Expose the injured extremity. If the person can't remove their clothing without the possibility of causing more of an injury, of course, you know, if you're, you have a leg or an arm that's pointing the wrong way, it may be hard to take those pants or shirt off, cut away the clothing with an EMT shears or a bandage scissors. Either one would do just fine. Uh, You want to stop bleeding. Of course, bones are in close proximity to veins and arteries and nerves, by the way. And all these can be injured by trauma that is strong enough to break a bone, right? So for the purpose of this situation, we're going to assume that there's no active bleeding and that your pulses and the sensation beyond the level of the injury that is further away from the body core are normal. The bone protrudes through the skin. Keep it covered with a moist dressing, uh, preferably sterile, a splint, the extremity then, what immobilize it in other words, using, let's say, a structural aluminum malleable splint. That's called the SAM splint, S-A-M splint. Uh, or, of course, you can improvise with sticks, pillows, rolled magazines, or even wrap the limb, let's say, like if it was a leg, around a, a sleeping pad and duct tape that in place. Don't try to set the fracture. In normal times, you do not try to set the fracture or straighten a deformed extremity. 
you just want to provide the area with as much padding as possible. Basically, you just want to keep a bone that's sticking out just moist and covered up. Of course, if there's swelling, which there will be, by the way, and pain, you want to apply some ice packs that will help that. And of course, pain meds like ibuprofen or acetaminophen are uh, not a bad idea, although they may be nowhere near enough to actually help with any significant pain. When we're talking about broken bones, it's, it's really true. Notice that what I just said specifically recommends that you not try to straighten a bone that is deformed by a fracture. And that fra kind of fracture that makes the bone all wacky looking is called a displaced fracture. Wait. Is there an official definition wacky. for wacky looking? Wacky looking. Well, man, it looks wacky. <laughs> it's one of those like. What are, what are some? You uh, look at it and you got you got to turn away. It's right. not something what, you can't unsee. What's some examples of, of being wacky looking? Well, if you know if your knee is pointing in the wrong direction, <laughs> or if your foot's backwards, or Ooh. your yeah things like that. What's uh, that video series that we watch on television that that show that shows all those skateboarding accidents? Oh, and, yeah. Mostly uh, skateboarding accidents. America's uh, dumbest, world's worst dumbest. Yes. yes. <laughs> dumbest wow. video. Videos. Wow. Crazy Scary. stuff. Yeah. Oh, we have seen them fall and from their elbow down, it looks like spaghetti. Oh, yeah. And it's just... Just flopping around. Oh, and it's horrible and misshapen. So anyhow, if you have a displaced fracture or you're not supposed to straighten it in normal times, you're supposed to just wait for 911, mm -hmm. or, nor are you supposed to push a bone that's protruding through the skin back into the body, you call 911. So go ahead and let the professionals do their job if they exist. Yes. That's great advice because you can introduce infection or damaged blood vessel or nerves by fiddling around with it. And on top of that, it hurts like a son of a you-know-what <laughs> to try to st straighten, so out broken, friendly, honey. straighten out a broken bone. Straighten out a broken bone. I am. I am. <laughs> that kind of guy. Straightening out a broken bone is actually called a reduction. And these reduction procedures are almost always done on these days under general anesthesia. Sometimes it involves actually making an incision so you can find the broken ends of the bones and put them together. And then you screw them into place with these special titanium screws. Maybe you put plates on to hold the bone straight, all sorts of super high-tech stuff that you're just not going to have, right? The survival medic has no access to modern medical facilities, so they have to act in one way or another to reduce the deformity caused by the fracture if you ever want that limb to function again. Now, when there's no opportunity to, to transport a victim out to a hospital, you got to figure out some kind of strategy. If you're lucky enough, and here's your strategy. If you're lucky enough to have a fracture where the bones are in alignment, yay for you, <laughs> stabilize it with padding and splints and preferably maybe a cast would be better even. Lack of immobilization of an extremity can cause bone ends to become displaced with activity, right? So in other words, if let's say the bones are together, but then you're telling the person to do something, you know, you have these weak, this weak area here that's trying to heal, but because of stress put on the limb, it causes it to break again and or to just not become the bones not to become aligned bad news. The ice packs are available. You got to ice the area for 20 minutes several times a day for about the first 48 hours. The broken ends of the bone are clearly out of alignment. In a long-term survival scenario, you've got to do something about that because the bone's ends aren't going to knit together until you manage to return them to a, in general, normal position. First, they form a, a blood clot between them, and then they form what's called a callus. A callus is new bone cells that are trying to fill in and knit the bone together. 
So you have to do this quickly because there's a lot of damage that can occur as a result of bones being displaced. The pulse might be absent. The sensation or movement might be lost beyond the level of the injuries. You want to try to get things back together. If you're uncertain about the pulse, of course, you can always evaluate circulation by doing a capillary refill time. I've talked about that when we talked about triage for mass casualties. You press on a nail bed or on a finger pad, and that normally causes that area to blanch, to turn white, and then quickly return to its normal color. This usually occurs within two seconds, the whole thing, where it turns white and then goes back to normal color very quick if you have normal circulation. If you can release the tension by traction, by stretching the bone so that it's straight again, you might restore circulation and sensation to an injured limb. That's when you don't have help coming. Now, another good reason to act in a timely fashion is that as time goes on, the swelling will get worse and worse, and it'll make it more difficult to actually reduce a fracture and straighten, straighten out a displaced bone or displaced bone ends. In addition, all this muscle tension from all the pain and things like that, that's going to be worse as time goes on. So, so you have to act some way. If there are fractures that don't have a lot of muscle involved, like maybe the finger, a broken finger, just simple traction in a small splint or taping to an adjacent uh, undamaged finger might, might, might be actually all you need to do. A straighten and obviously deformed arm or leg involves a lot of effort. You're attempting to stretch these contracted and tense muscles so the fracture edges will have enough space to ease back into their normal locations, right, and to realign. So what you need to do is you need to have an assistant stabilize the limb above the fracture, that's the part closest to the torso, while you apply slow, gentle, but firm traction on the other side. Now the bone might realign quickly, or it could take some minutes, painful minutes, of steady but firm stretching. To avoid further damage, you have to be careful of pulling at some kind of weird angle or in any way that doesn't achieve the original alignment. This is can be tricky sometimes. You have to really take a look at what the injury looks like and imagine what it would take to straighten things out again. Once you do get things realigned and you want to splint the joint above and below the fracture and immobilize it in that position immediately, you want to get that straight. Sometimes what happens is that when the traction is taken off, when the stretching stops, then it goes out of alignment again. That's something that is a big issue. And so you're going to have to put together some kind of improvised splint that will allow there to be some traction. Oh, by the way, if you are alone, let's say if you don't have an assistant to stabilize the body, what you can do is find a tree that has a notch at about the right level. And you can have the person, let's say have a broken arm, put their shoulder through and their arm through this notch. And as you stretch the arm straight, the tree itself is doing the actual stabilization of the torso and the area above the level of the fracture. So that's a way that a lone medic can actually reduce uh, a deformity in, in a fractured bone. Even though the bone's aligned, you may need, as I said, some added traction to keep, keep it there. And there are commercial traction devices. They're awesome. They're easy to implement, well worth the expense. If you've haven't taken a look at them, you'll see them on, on our website or me mention them on the website. A continuous traction splint is something you can improvise, however. You need two branches of different sizes, one that would go directly from the ground to directly under the shoulder, almost like a crutch, and the other one that would be a support for the inseam 
the inseam of the leg. Both of these are best if you have, let's say, branches that are about two inches in width, and you have one that goes just inside of the upper thigh to about eight to 10 inches beyond the foot, the other one eight to 10 inches beyond the foot and all the way up just below the armpit. It would be great if you had a natural notch to make a, like a Y uh, with a Y in it where two branches diverge. That might help it make a more stable crutch, especially at the upper ends of each of these sticks. You want to secure these all in place with cloth strips, ace wraps, uh, any other material that you might have all the way up and down the leg and torso, especially just above and below the actual fracture area. And where the branches contact the skin, you've got to place, figure out some kind of padding, whether it's clothing or dressings or whatever. You have to pad the area where those branches contact the skin because it's going to otherwise cause abrasions and other kinds of discomfort, uh, uncomfortable stuff. You want to cut into the lower edges of the stick below the level of the foot and make to make a notch so you could put maybe a, a two-inch piece of wood. You fit that and you lash it onto each side so you have essentially a stabilizing base to these two sticks. Then you want to wrap a, a, a cloth or other material around the ankle, tie the ends to that lash horizontal stick, and then use a two or three inch long stick, maybe an inch or so thick, to twist the cloth. You twist it just like you would a tourniquet windlass. A, a windlass is a rod that a tourniquet has that you twist it and causes there to be tension. And this you can do to give traction to the broken leg until both legs are the same length. And then once you do that, you tie the windlass into place. Now it sounds complex, but you will find that there is actually not an unreasonable way to do this. You just have to be ready to improvise. You need to have the material to be able to cut wood into the appropriate sizes and lashing material and dressings. Oh, one thing that's important is you always have to monitor the level of traction and the circulation status of the lower limb or the area beyond the level of the traction. For example, the hand or the foot, just to make sure that you still have good circulation there. The, and of course, the comfort level of the victim is, has to be taken into account as well. Once the broken bones are realigned, oftentimes the person will have less pain get some relief. For open fractures, the skin wound and protruding bone has to have to be flushed vigorously with sterile water, saline solution, uh, antiseptics like povidone iodine solution, betadine, good alternative. These victims are going to need antibiotics for sure. Things like clindamycin, cleosin, its veterinary equivalent is fishsin, uh, sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, that's otherwise known as Bactrim, or its veterinary equivalent is fish sulfa. These would all be options for the survival medic to decrease the chance of bone infections like osteomyelitis, like I mentioned before. Not as good as IV antibiotics, but better than nothing. Over where the wound is, you want to change dressings on a regular basis. Placing a cast, that's something that, believe it or not, yes, indeed, you can do. For many fractures, a splint just might not be enough to ensure good healing, so you want to maybe consider the placement of a cast to enforce immobilization. But not over an open wound. <laughs> right, not over an open Do not cast over an open wound that you right. need to be doing dressing well, changes you need to be for. Right. You need to be able to keep an eye on that. I just want to mention one thing. People who get these kind of injuries and they need their fractures reduced, they have surgery. Yes, we mentioned that. They get that. bolts and nuts, and there's no way. You're not going to be casting. You're not going to be putting this kind of hardware 
You're not going to make them look like Frankenstein with bolts coming out of their legs. That's right. In a survival situation, it's just not possible. Yeah. So basically, but you can use things like plaster of Paris or fiberglass that come in all sorts of different kits. You might want to have some. You can. They're easy to obtain. They last a long time, so they're good for your storage. Plaster, by the way, is more pliable, hardens slower than fiberglass, which gives you more time to apply the cast. The fiberglass is lighter and less messy to use. Uh, however, the thing with that is that it's much more expensive. So you have to make some decisions. Now, by the way, I've seen different opinions as to which hardens faster or hardens slower. So you may see other other opinions, but I, I seem to see that most people think that uh, the plaster seems to harden slower. In any case, that's good and that's bad for different reasons. Each fracture is casted somewhat differently, of course, you know, whether if it's an arm fracture, leg fracture, whatever, uh, ankle fracture, but the basic principles are the same. When you place a cast, you first start with a liner of uh, cotton known as a stockinette. A stockinette is uh, measured and cut several inches longer, comes in rolls, several inches longer than the intended cast. You place it without wrinkling over the area to be casted like you would put on a sock. Then you need rolls of padding to form a barrier between the skin and the cast. You advance one half of the thickness of the roll each turn as you go from below the fracture up towards the torso. The padding should be at least two to three layers thick, should extend an inch or two beyond the cast edge. Extra padding should be applied between fingers and over any bony prominence on the wrist or ankle, for example. And at this point, if you have plaster of Paris or fiberglass, then you immerse them uh, they come in rolls in cool water for about 20 seconds or so. And then you squeeze them to remove excess water to have them so they're just damp. Keep the end of the roll between your fingers, by the way. Otherwise, it'll stick to the rest of the roll and you're not going to be able to find it. Then what you need to do is slowly wrap the casting material around the area of the fracture and you smooth it out as you go along. You advance one half of the thickness of the roll each turn as you go from below the fracture towards the shoulder or the torso. Avoid making it too tight. You want about three layers of casting material on the area, more in places where there is a bony prominence like the wrist. You roll the ends of the stockinette and the padding back over the cast material before the last layer is applied so that you have some padding around the edges. So stocking, padding, and casting rolls, these are available in different widths, lengths, appropriate to a particular fracture. For comfort and cleanliness, plastic wrap is always helpful to cover the cast during bathing. Remember that a wet cast is a smelly cast. There are oscillating saws that are used today remove casts, but you may not have the luxury of electricity. I don't know if there are any battery-powered versions. There's still heavy-duty shears that are available for the purpose, but you have to put some elbow grease into it to perform the removal of a cast using them. Uh, most of these fractures will require about six to eight weeks, and this is to form a complete callus. This is newly formed tissue that's going to reunite the broken ends of the bones. Uh, amazing how we can heal from that. Larger bones, of course, are more complicated injuries. It will take longer. There's a lot more to setting a bone than just pulling on a damaged extremity. Don't get me wrong. I'm giving you some basics, and it's no substitute for modern medicine. As Amy said, surgery is needed for many orthopedic injuries to get a full recovery. There's damage to tendons, blood vessels, nerves, all sorts of stuff that can complicate the recovery process. And off the grid, we have to understand there are circumstances where even the best efforts of the survival medic are going to be met with less than optimal results. But you know what they say, do what you can with what you have, where you are, and you'll have the mindset in place if you take this saying to heart. But you'll also need, of course, knowledge. You'll need some training. You'll need supplies if you're going to be an effective giver of health care 
in tough times. Hey, we just have a few minutes left, so we're going to go ahead and give you a couple of vignettes from Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast, where we serve as expert council members. One question is about hair loss, and the next question is about soft tissue infections and what antibiotics will help. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness, as well as an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's letter for the expert counsel is from Ford, who writes, What medications or supplies should I stock in addition to regular medical prep for cellulitis? I've developed a history of cellulitis in my shins. Antibiotics have been used to treat it successfully, but I'm concerned about the chances of resistant bacteria. Can you recommend which antibiotics and supplies I should stockpile for you-know-what situations? Also, anything I can do to help prevent this recurring. It has come from both cuts and most recently, chigger bites. I have used bug repellent with limited success and have become very diligent about keeping the area clean. Thank you, Ford. Ford, I've written a lot about cellulitis in the last decade and even have a section on it in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Cellulitis is an inflammation of soft tissue. It can occur in any circumstance where your body's natural armor, your skin, is breached and bacteria invade deeper layers. It's very common. Very few people that spend time outdoors will avoid getting it from time to time. This would be especially true in survival settings where you have to perform exertions that you're just not accustomed to doing just to stay alive. Despite everything you do to care for a wound, there's a chance that an infection will occur. You can identify cellulitis by a few signs other than just pain. Redness, often spreading as the infection worsens, usually going up your arm or up your leg, depending what part of the body is actually injured. Swelling, which leads to a very shiny aspect to the skin in the area that's swollen. Warmth, which is obviously different than, say, on the opposite unaffected side. It's definitely going to be warmer on the red side than it is on the side that does not have the injury. And in the worst cases, accumulations of pus called abscesses can occur. This leads to a foul odor and the drainage of a whitish, yellowish discharge. If this condition is untreated, the infection can, in certain cases, spread to your circulation and become life-threatening. Cellulitis can be caused by many bacteria, but is most commonly caused by streptococcus and staphylococcus, which enter through a break in your skin. A more resistant version of staph called MRSA, M-R-S-A, can make this infection even more difficult to deal with. Cellulitis is often treated, as it was in your case, Ford, with antibiotics. The most common antibiotics used to treat the infection that are available to the general public without a prescription are amoxicillin, cephalexin, trimethoprin, sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, and doxycycline in their aquatic or avian versions. That is, Fishmox Forte, Fish Flex Forte, Fish Sulfa Forte, Fish Sin, C-I-N, and Bird Biotic, respectively. All this is in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Now, don't forget that amoxicillin and cephalexin may cause reaction to those people who are allergic to penicillin and may not be effective against MRSA in some cases. 
To help prevent cellulitis and other infections, take these precautions when you have a skin wound. Wash your wound daily with soap and water. Do this gently as part of your normal bathing. Apply a protective cream or ointment. For most surface wounds and over-the-counter ointment, such as bacitracin, triple antibiotic cream, even Vaseline helps to provide some protection. You also want to make sure you cover open wounds with a bandage and change that bandage at least daily. You want to follow the course of the infection by marking the boundaries of the redness with a marker. If it's spreading, make sure you're taking one of the antibiotics that I mentioned. In your specific case, Ford, you want to start wearing boots and high tops as well as long pants when you're outside and tuck your trousers into your boots. Although I can't vouch for their success with chiggers, certain insects really don't like DEET repellents for skin and permethrin 0.5%, not for skin, but to treat clothing. The bottom line is to protect your skin. Your skin is your armor and you want to avoid a break in it, whether it's from an insect bite or whether it's from some other injury. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Libby in North Carolina, who writes, I have a question for Doc Bones regarding hair loss on a plant-based vegan diet. I made the transition to a plant-based vegan diet over a year ago now, and by and large, I've been very happy with the results. My overall health is much better, and I've seen a dramatic improvement in many of the chronic health issues I have been experiencing. The only downside is that I've experienced significant hair loss. It started off as a regular postpartum hair loss shortly after my daughter was born, but then just never stopped. I've tried keeping a food diary along with my multivitamin, and I am either meeting or well exceeding my nutrient goals. Also, my standard CBC panel was normal in my last checkup, so I'm a bit perplexed as to what the problem could be. I was wondering if you could offer any insight or suggest any testing that I could request that would possibly help me pin down what the issue is. Thanks, Libby from Burlington, North Carolina. Libby, you're not alone. The American Academy of Dermatology notes that millions of men and women have hair loss, also known as alopecia. For some, it's hereditary. For others, it may be related to stress, and in still others, it may be an autoimmune condition, one where your body produces an immune response against itself. Your condition may actually be different from all of those. You didn't mention the pattern of hair loss you've experienced, but it can affect just the hair on your scalp or your entire body. Although alopecia is more prevalent in older adults, excessive hair loss can occur even in children. Normal hair loss is about 50 to 100 hairs a day with about 100,000 hairs on your head. That small hair loss, well, it isn't noticeable. New hair normally replaces lost hair, but this doesn't always happen. Hair loss can develop gradually over years or happen abruptly. Hair loss can be permanent or temporary. Hormonal changes, that's another cause of temporary hair loss. And examples include pregnancy and childbirth, as you've noticed, Libby, after having your baby, discontinuing the use of birth control pills, and, of course, menopausal changes. Besides autoimmune diseases like lupus, other medical conditions that can cause hair loss include thyroid disease, something very common in women, scalp infections like ringworm, and other skin conditions like lichen planus. Hair loss can also be due to medications used to treat diseases like cancer or high blood pressure, arthritis, depression, heart problems. 
even physical and emotional shocks may do it as well. Deaths in the family, extreme weight loss, significant sickness can do it too. Now, about your diet, low protein consumption and rapid weight loss associated with a vegan diet can lead to hair loss. You can eat protein in abundance on a vegan diet, though, as long as you include nuts, seeds, legumes, beans, and soy. By the way, relying too much on soy products could be problematic for your hair, so don't rely too much on that. The bottom line is that you sound like a healthy woman who has healthy habits, but there are sometimes underlying health issues that aren't obvious. So I would see a dermatologist for a full evaluation. Their evaluation should include a full history, a careful exam, and in some cases they take a small sample of skin where the hair loss occurred to send to the lab. You've already had a CBC, which is good, but some blood tests for thyroid problems and other medical conditions would also be indicated, in my opinion. The doctor can give you topical creams and gels to apply to the area. The most common products contain an ingredient known as minoxidil or Rogaine, sometimes used for male pattern baldness in men. A stronger prescription medication is called finasteride or Propecia. Doctors also prescribe, in some cases, corticosteroids for autoimmune conditions, things like prednisone. Individuals with alopecia can use this to reduce inflammation and suppress the immune system. But you have to realize that these are very strong drugs. They really should only be used if absolutely necessary. Hopefully, you won't need those. To prevent further hair loss, one thing you shouldn't do is make sure you don't wear tight hairstyles like braids, ponytails, buns. They may put pressure on your hair follicles and could damage them. Make sure you're eating a balanced diet that includes adequate amounts of iron and protein. You might use a gentle baby shampoo to wash your hair, and you might consider maybe washing your hair only every other day and pat your hair dry instead of rubbing your hair vigorously. There are styling products and tools that are also common culprits in hair loss, and some examples include blow dryers, heated combs, hair straighteners, coloring products, bleaching agents, perms, things like that, relaxers. If you decide to style your hair with heated tools, only do so when your hair is dry. Also, use the lowest settings possible. You know, that's about all the time that we have for our show. Well, that show. went really fast. That went really fast. For you, we thank <laughs> you out there for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Joe Alton, MD, Amy Alton, ARNP. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.